Wow. Every time I sing that song, I feel like I just want to start running. Good morning. My name is Chris Emhoff, and I chair the missions committee here at Greenville Oaks, and uh, we're wrapping up Mission Emphasis this Sunday. And as you've heard already several times, we have the uh, mission contribution coming here later on after the uh, sermon. So just a couple of things about that. One, just as a repeater, we only have one contribution each year, and that lasts us the whole year. So it's not like we take up multiple contributions. Uh, we have pledge cards. If you say, well, I'm not ready to give today, but I really want to contribute to this work. So we have pledge cards. They're kind of scattered throughout the pockets in the back, uh, the seats in front of you in, in different areas. And I think there's also some on the kiosk out front or, uh, you know, let the office know or whatever if you want to make a pledge. But that allows us to know if you're going to be contributing later how much we have to work with. So really appreciate that. You know, we've talked a lot about all the things that we have planned. And, you know, the only way any of these things are going to happen is if God works through you in your giving and in all of your time and efforts and money. So really appreciate all of that. We've got a lot of stuff planned. You know, we've kind of been over that. I'm not going to repeat all those things. We've got a lot of mission trips coming up, a lot of things. One of the things that I wanted to bring to you this morning just to kind of introduce you to it a little bit as far as our uh, global missions effort is uh, Eastern European Mission. And some of you have probably heard of that. It kind of goes by EEM. That's kind of what I call it. It's basically a, an organization that puts Bibles in Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, and all there and in the schools. So here in America, while there seems to be a, an increasing effort by some individuals to get prayer, Bible, God, everything out of the schools, got parts of the world trying to put God in the schools. So it's really an amazing thing. Really what's amazing, too, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about, but Connie and I kind of started our mission work in Ukraine and we were always amazed that you could give them a Bible, come back a year later on the next mission trip, and that thing would be almost worn out. And, you know, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. They'd have writing in there. They wore it out. You talk to them. I, oh, yeah, I've read this thing four times. You know, so it's not that they just want a Bible to kind of go put on the shelf. They actually want to read it. One kid got a hold of the Bible while we were there, and during the week we were there, he sat over on the couch and read the whole thing. And he had a bunch of questions, and we were like, wow. So anyway, I'm not going to... Uh, it, any further ado, I want to introduce Lanny Tucker. He's with the EEM, and he's going to give you a little update on what's going on there. And uh, may God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And it's an honor to be here this morning. Uh, we have a few slides, and if you could go to the next one, please. Um, they will be good to see if you have those there. Um, I'm here especially to say thank you to you. Um, the work that is done this past year by over 420 churches and a lot of individuals across our whole country is blessing the 24 former communist nations, uh, 350 million people. So when you give, uh, last year as you give today, um, as you pray, you have 350 million reasons at least uh, when you think of Eastern European Mission uh, to be giving and to be praying. I had the, the pleasure of going over to Ukraine, and I got to visit about a dozen public schools. Last year alone, and you all gave directly towards this million-dollar Sunday project that we had, last year alone, 2,071 public schools requested of us that we give them Bibles. They are teaching Christian ethics in these schools. I hope it doesn't take us 70 years of atheism ruling our nation uh, to be in that same circumstances, but they are hungry for God's word. And oftentimes, as Chris was saying, 
the, at the average time, this is not a scientific survey, but we asked a lot of people, how long did it take you to read through your Bible after you got it? And I got answers, and they were all only as long as a month. A lot of folks say in two weeks. So a worn-out Bible is no joke. In fact, we've gone back to a lot of the public schools who over the last six years we have given Bibles to and said, would you like some more? Oh, yes, yes. We've worn out a lot from the library at our school where kids are checking them out and their families are reading them too. So thank you for what you're doing. I want to share one story that I hope will will bring the 350 million people, the 24 nations, down to one example. I got to meet a lady who's a district superintendent in, in her district in Luhansk, Ukraine. Galina was her name. And she was going on for about 10 minutes. If you've ever been at the line at Walmart, perhaps you don't know Spanish like I don't. And you hear two people speaking Spanish. And you kind of wonder what they're talking about because you're only getting the nonverbals. Well, that was the conversation between our translator and Galena. And there was laughter, but there was concern. And I was thinking, I hope this turns out good. I'm not sure. She's a, an official lady here. Well, finally, our translator interrupts Galena and says, you've said one thing three times. And Lanny needs to hear this because he doesn't speak Russian. He doesn't know that you've said the same thing three times. So would you say it a fourth time and let me translate it? And tears start coming down her cheeks as Galena says in Russian to us, for 70 years, we've been trying to escape atheism. But you, through these Bibles, are freeing us to teach our children about God. We serve a great God, Jehovah God. So thank you for your partnership in the gospel that is making a real difference in people's lives. God bless you. We've got Discovering Greenville Oaks. It's going on during class time and second service. So if you saw me wander in, because we're with a whole new group of people that are coming to this church, I just want to say a great thank you to those of you who are inviting neighbors and friends, who are welcoming. We get this response over and over again from people, how welcome people feel. And that doesn't just happen by greeters out there. It happens because they feel a part or welcome to lunch or welcome to connecting point groups. So I've got a good report from the room back there that's still going on that uh, we've got a a great number of people who are still coming and uh, excited about what we're doing here at Greenville Oaks. I'm excited for this morning uh, to hear what Eastern European Missions is doing, what Lanny shared with us. I mean, this is just one organization among others that we give to, not just the missionaries and the short-term mission trips, but it's organizations like this that can do this far better than we can on a mission trip, right? We've been doing this for years now. And to think about ways we can partner, not just financially, but in other ways, it's exciting to hear about those works that are going on, right? This morning, I want to remind us of a couple more opportunities to engage in mission in our area. One of those comes up in a couple of weeks on Easter Sunday. 
this is one of those Sundays that if you invite your neighbors and friends, they're not already a part of a church, they're going to be very likely to, to, to take your invitation. And we would encourage you to think about who in your life could use a message of good news. I'm excited to start a new series on Easter Sunday called All Things. It's going to be a message series about our great God, how big He is, and all that He's doing to restore everything in this world. So I think it's going to be a message of good news for those you might bring, and I encourage you to think about who those people might be in your life. Invite them Easter Sunday and uh, be ready to come and serve and worship God, celebrate the resurrection. The other thing is our Just Go Challenge. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. We've tried to keep you posted, but the deadline for entries for this is tomorrow. And so I know uh, we've gotten several requests that are great. Next week we'll share more about this and pray over those who will be doing this. Basically, we have excess funds in our benevolence thanks to your generous contributions. And we think you'll do a better job of helping people than some committee at our church can because we can't possibly know all the opportunities you do. So you may have thought about doing this. You see this email address. Send your idea. It may not be a full, you know, fledged idea yet with all the details, but Galen Jones would love to work with any one of you who has an inkling of an idea this week. So send it in, whatever it might be, just a few words. Let us know, and we'll be in contact this week about that opportunity. We're excited to see the ways God will use that uh, to connect and change people in our area. Right now, let's pray together, and then we're going to get into the message this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your story of good news. I thank you that we're, we're not to be afraid anymore because you're a God who, who goes before us. And I thank you so much that you're a God who's worthy of all of our praise, that there are no other gods who are like you. And today, as we look at mission, as we get to give to this contribution, God, I, I just want to say thank you for all that you've given to us. And remind us today that these aren't just dollars that don't go towards Starbucks and food for us or or, or a cable bill, God. This, these are funds that will change lives, God, for uh, the better. So this morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. I've been thinking this week about taboos in our culture. And it, I, it was interesting, the thought in my own mind as I'm sitting at Starbucks. I, I write my sermons there so I can get work done because it's hard to get it done here. So much going on around this place all the time, which I'm excited about, by the way. To have the preschoolers and hear those young voices all the time. My kids have a great job, uh, enjoy that school so much. But as I was sitting at Starbucks, I was thinking about the taboos that go on in our culture. And I started to wonder, why, why do certain taboos emerge in certain cultures and not in others? There's some things that we take for granted that we talk about that other cultures, that would not be something you would want to bring up. And I love it this morning because I have the power by talking about taboos to bring up something and cause your heart to race the whole room in a moment, right? Some of you are like really nervous right now, right? Like what's he going to bring up? No. I, I said this a few weeks ago actually. I said, I said uh, you know, why don't you lean over to the person next to you and tell them what your yearly salary is? Then I stopped you quickly so that you, know, you didn't get too nervous about that. We have these taboos in our culture that we can't seem to talk about, that we learn is just, they're not things we talk about in polite company. So this morning, I, I wanted to think about a few of those because, it, you know, when that happens, when someone brings up a taboo subject in a public place like this or asks you a question you think is inappropriate, certain things happen, right? You might get red splotchy places on your neck or your, your pulse quickens or, you know, you just get nervous in those situations. Like, you know, if I've just learned growing up, you don't ask a woman her age, right? That's one of those taboo subjects in our culture. 
And I don't know when this happens on Facebook, but a lot of young people, they'll have the year of their birth on there, and then it tells everyone how old they are. But there's some point along the way that there are fewer years uh, on profiles. Have you noticed this? Yeah, it's their birthday, but you don't know how old they are, right? Uh, but it's not just age. It's not just wealth that we talk about. There are other taboos in our lives as well. What's interesting about the age one is we don't ask people their age often, but in Vietnam, it's very important to know the person you're talking to and what their age is. Because their age, and if they're older than you or younger than you, will dictate how you're supposed to respond to that person out of respect for them. And so that's an important factor. And while we don't talk about how much you make, and in other countries like Germany, you wouldn't ask that, there are other countries throughout the world like China where that's a topic of conversation that's just normal. And while that might cause us concern, some of you have traveled enough to know these kind of awkward situations that arise from time to time. Or did you know that in Thailand, it's actually against the law to say anything negative about the royal family, to criticize them? And by looking at the Facebook profiles I look at like that often, that is not exactly a taboo here, right? And so we have these taboos, and, and I began thinking about that, wondering, what is it about this? Why are we different from other cultures? And this is what I've discovered. I think that the taboos in a certain culture in some way relate to the idolatries in a culture. Like, we're, we don't want to talk about those things, and we actually create rules around not talking about those things, so we don't have to delve into the difficult topics we don't really want to talk about that sometimes grip our lives. Think about American culture for a moment. Age is one of those things we don't talk about, right? And I think there's a reason for that. Because we have a, a death anxiety in our culture, right? I mean, we, we move people who pass away to funeral homes as fast as we can. When you're in other countries, it's not exactly that way. So we have this anxiety about death, and we love to put youth in front of us and try to look young because we don't want to think about death that's on the way. There's a taboo that's related, I think, in some way to an idolatry. Or think about weight. We don't ask somebody's weight. And part of that is appearance is one of those idolatries in our culture. Like we want to look a certain way. We want to put off a certain impression to people. And to have to admit things like that is very difficult because we hold a high value for that. Or think about sex. Sex is one of those taboo topics as well in our culture. I think part of that is in American culture, we are driven towards pleasure in every way we can find it. And to say there are some things that might be off limits when it comes to our sexuality, that, that's just an awkward conversation because there's, there's something there that our culture has, has allowed to become an idol. But the one I want to focus on this morning is, is money. Why is that a taboo in our culture? Why? And when I got to think about it more and more, I realized I think it's a value because when you have a lot of money, you can live a very individualistic lifestyle, can't you? You don't have to depend on other people. I mean, you can take care of yourself and you can help others. And, but how many of you have been through a rough stretch financially and you've had to go to someone and maybe even ask, could, I, could our family stay at your house? We're, we're about to be put out of our house. That's a very humbling, difficult thing to walk through in American culture. Or, or think about someone you know, needing to borrow money from someone. That, that is a difficult ask, isn't it? Or to say, I'm in debt and I need someone to get me out and to ask someone who seems to have a little bit more help in this area or has gotten out of debt, I need your help to get out of this. For some reason in our culture, that's kind of off topic. It's, it's difficult to enter into those areas. And I think it points to some idols in our culture that we have to be aware of. If you've ever been through financial difficulty, I think you get this, that individualism is one of our culture's highest values. 
And it's good in some sense that we have a, a value for individual responsibility. But I think if you look at Scripture, you begin to realize independence isn't exactly the value of the gospel, is it? It's dependence on one another, dependence on God, dependence on Jesus and what he's offered to us in salvation. We are dependent, and that's how we're saved. What do we call the 4th of July holiday? We call it Independence Day, right? And and I'm not here to say that's a bad idea. Independence is a good thing in many senses, but, but we've got to acknowledge that Scripture pushes back against that to call us to dependency on one another. So a Sunday like this, when we we talk about money, when we offer a contribution, it can be kind of a a difficult Sunday because we have this taboo. But what this is doing today when we give is it's releasing us from some of the taboos that we've allowed to take over. It's releasing us from the idolatry that has a hold of many of our lives. You know, I've had a lot of people come and, and, and confess sins to me as a minister before. You know what I've never had them confess before to me? The sin of greed. Never had anyone come and say, Colin, I'm really struggling with the sin in my life, and it's greed, and I don't know how to get a hold of it because it's killing me right now. Because there's something taboo about even that, even more than other idols in our culture. So that's what today is all about. We practice generosity in order to better understand our dependence on God and on one another. Because when we don't give to other people, when we take our money and call it our own, we don't have to depend on anyone else if there's enough to go around. But when we give, all of a sudden we're giving out of what we have, expecting that we'll be taken care of in some way. We may need to receive from others when we give at times. But it's a commitment we make that God has set from the very beginning. You're to set out the first fruits and set it out to Him first. And this is why despite some of the abuses that ministers you know, go through when it comes to financial. Anyone see the news about Creflo Dollar this last week, right? That's actually the name of a preacher if you had never heard that before. Dollar's his last name. Uh, he said he needed $60 million for a private jet to fly around the world for his mission work, which I find interesting. So we hear these scandals, and then we tend to kind of drive these taboos deeper down. But what I'm here to say is we can't let the taboos of culture dictate our teaching because there's something very valuable in looking at the idols we have of uncovering those and trying to find ways to move past them. And I think generosity is the greatest way that we do that. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with me. Or maybe I should say it, I think I agree with the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And put a bookmark in that section or a finger there. Now, we're going to flip forward to a couple other passages. There's something interesting that I began to notice as I studied Scripture uh, more deeply over the past few years. I began to see something pop up in Paul's letters over and over again. And it's the offering or the collection that he takes up for the poor or the saints in Jerusalem. Have you noticed this? This comes up again and again. It's not something I remember hearing growing up in my classes, but I began to see, he's talking about this over and over again. And today I want to walk through some of these scriptures with you to show how important this was to him and why I think it was so important to Paul throughout his letter. So you got your finger in 2 Corinthians 8, but I want you to turn over uh, to Galatians chapter 2. I want to begin reading in verse 7. Again, this is Paul's words to the church at Galatia. Galatians 2, verse 7. Paul writes, On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. 
James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked, and listen to this, all they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So Paul's referring back to a moment where he was commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. And they say, this is great. You go and do that. We'll continue the work among the Jews. Just remember one thing. And what is it? Remember the poor as you go about your work. Now, that's an interesting out of all the things you could cause someone to remember. Remember the poor. And Paul seems to remember this charge he was given. Turn in your Bibles to a different passage he refers to. It's in Romans chapter 15. Much later in his ministry, Paul writes to the church at Rome. And it seems in this, these verses that he has not forgotten that charge he was given to remember the poor. Romans 15, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. Now pay attention to this passage, right? At first he says, hey, pay attention to Macedonia and Achaia. These churches are doing a great job. They're, They're taking up this collection, right? But then he continues on in the passage below. And in verse 27 He says that the Gentiles actually owe the Jewish Christians something. Like, think about this. They've been grafted into this story. This was originally a story about God and the people of Israel. But now in the book of Acts, we're seeing the Gentiles coming to faith. And they're extending their blessing to these people. The spiritual blessing is coming to the Gentiles. But now Paul is coming to the Gentiles at the end of his ministry and saying, yeah, they gave you something and you owe them something in return. So yes, take care of the poor who are there. That's an important piece. But he gives a spiritual emphasis to this as well. He says you don't just owe them financially because they're in material need. He, He says you owe them because spiritually they're your forefathers. They're the reason you're in this story at all. And somehow their money being given to these people ties them to those people in a dependency, to use that word again. Now they're dependent on these people, and they're acknowledging their dependency. And when the Jews in Jerusalem received this gift, can you imagine the blessing this would be to them? Not just to have all that they need financially, but to know that these Gentiles are still thinking about them and are grateful for the relationship they have. Well, in Corinthians, Paul references this offering a couple of more times. And so I want, to, I want you to turn to the end of 1 Corinthians, to 1 Corinthians 16. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. At the end of his first letter, at least the first letter that we still have, this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. He references this offering, this collection again. Now about the collection, he has a one-track mind, right? For the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So he commands them, make sure you set aside this offering. And in 2 Corinthians, he comes back to this. It's about a year later when he writes 2 Corinthians. 
And this is what he says, back to that bookmark section we, 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 we had earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the passage I want to camp out in because he says a lot that I think is important for us to hear. So you've heard all this background about this collection. He's mentioned it to him in the last letter. And this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, uh, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Now Paul's brilliant in how he argues. He's not just some guy who's writing a letter, right? And how does he talk to them? He says, says, He doesn't say, listen, you owe that collection I told you about in my last letter. Like, pay up now, I'm coming. He says, hey, let me tell you about the Macedonian churches. They've been so gracious. They've given of themselves even beyond what they were really capable of doing. Now, they may be tired of hearing about the Macedonian churches. That's twice now he references them. So I'm sure they've got this great reputation, right? And he's written all these hard things to him in, in, in 1 Corinthians, right? So maybe they're like, Paul, quit talking about these great churches. We're struggling. Let's keep reading verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's interesting. He doesn't say this sacrifice of giving. He doesn't say this trial of giving or this, he says this grace of giving. There's something about generosity that's a grace given to us. But notice what he says. Again, he starts by saying, look at the Macedonian churches. They're doing great. But he also builds them up, doesn't he? He doesn't say, you owe me. He says, look, you've excelled in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge. What I want you to do now, why don't you excel in the grace of giving? That may be the next step for you. Now, part of me, as one who's read 1 Corinthians, is going, is this guy writing to the same church he wrote to in 1 Corinthians? Because Corinth is a mess, right? All kinds of problems in that church. And maybe it's been a great year. But he seems to see them so highly still in the midst of all that. Look, you excel in all these ways. Would you also excel in the grace of giving? I love the positive way he goes about this. But then he continues on, verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So he makes it clear, I'm not commanding you, but, you know, God was pretty generous with you, if you think about it. I know some of your sins, right? I mean, he's been gracious. And Jesus, you know, he was, he lived in, he he left wealth to take on poverty on the earth. So they've given up a lot. Maybe, maybe you ought to give up some too. Verse 10, let's keep reading. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Finish the work. Complete the assignment. I've I've shared with you before, you've been saving up. It's time to give your gift for the offering that I'm going to take to Jerusalem. 
Now, Paul never commands them to give, but he sure pushes hard on them, doesn't he? But I love the way he starts off in verse 10. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. He's not saying you have to give for God to be happy. If you're going to earn God's approval, then you'll do this. He says, this is my judgment about what is best for you. This is a guy who loves these people. He's trying to say to them, look, freedom is found in generosity. This is what's best for you. If you don't do this, God's going to take care of his work without you. But who wouldn't want to be in on something like this? And I'm thinking maybe Paul would say the same thing to us today. You know, God's going to get his work done in Eastern Europe. Wouldn't it be better to be a part of that and to enjoy the the joy of partnering in that work with the other works we're involved with? See, we often talk about freedom as if it's independence, right? We, We tie those two concepts together. But when generosity wells up, it is freedom, but it's not freedom from other people. It's actually freedom to be dependent on others in a relationship. This is the Acts 2 church. But they, they gave as everyone had need, and everyone had enough to go around. They were caring for one another. There was a dependence on one another. Now, this morning is our mission's contribution, and our goal is that today we would raise $175,000 in order to be a part of all the mission work that we've been challenged to, to do this next year. This is the one time a year that we give toward this specific uh, part of missions. And all I have to say this morning, I'm not commanding you to give, but it's my judgment this would be good for us. Because we have these taboos in our culture, and we have these idols in our culture, and sometimes it's hard to know how to break them down. But one way to break down the idol of wealth and greed and that struggle is to be generous with what we have. Because on the other side of generosity is not poverty. On the other side of generosity is freedom. So in just a moment, in fact, I'd like to ask those who served earlier, if you would get up and go to the back so we can take up this offering for missions. Um, you may be ready to give this morning. If not, there are ways to, to make sure that it's counted in the total towards missions later in the year. But I want to encourage you all to be generous. That when you give, you're not just giving to make sure things are taking, take, being done other places. You're giving so the power of money can be broken in our own lives. The power of greed can be broken. But I want to close with a story before we take up this offering. In 1997, I believe it was, First Colony Church of Christ in Sugarland, Texas, near Houston, decided they were going to be a part of a mission planting churches in Uganda. And within a series of years, that church planted a church that then planted 20 other churches. I mean, think about the impact of that. That's a great work, right? So they've done this work. They've given money. In fact, over 300 people from First Colony had gone on a mission trip to Uganda over the years. And over the years, they had given this money, they'd supported this mission, and it was really a situation of dependency, but not healthy dependency, right? It's one way, mostly, of giving. Until there was an event in 2008 that changed that. Hurricane Ike hit the coast of Galveston and Houston. Some of you may remember that hurricane. And the news stories were going around, not just nationally, but internationally about this. And you know who heard about this hurricane? It was the people in Uganda that they'd been supporting for all these years. When they heard about this and realized all that they had been given, they decided, you know, we need to give an offering to those people to help in the rebuilding effort that this church is going to be involved in, First Colony. So the guy announced it and said, next week we're going to be taking up an offering from all the churches that are there. And the people in Uganda that day gave 36,250 shillings to First Colony, which is approximately $21.96. 
It was almost twice the normal offering that they had on a regular Sunday. And think about what those people are living with. And Ronnie Norman, the senior minister at First Colony, said this was the most generous gift that that church had ever received. Stories like that touch me. Don't they touch you? Because you begin to realize it's not just us about uh, us going and serving and blessing other people. The dependency is not just a one-way dependency. The healthiest kind of dependency is when we depend on one another. When we pour out our gifts, God does incredible things to multiply. Because the Sunday after they received that $21.96, Ronnie Norman challenged the church, give in any multiple of $21.96 and let's see what we can raise for hurricane relief. And $40,000 was raised the next week by the First Colony Church. But that would have never happened if it wouldn't have been for the $21.96 that was sent to them from this mission field. When I think about what we're doing this morning, we're breaking the bonds of greed. We're seeking to be generous people. We hope that great work goes on other places. But the greatest part of this is that we realize that as we give, we're dependent on others. And others can be dependent on us. And that's the best way to be in relationship is to know we need one another. It's what the church needed in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, and I think it's what we need more than anything else. So let's pray right now as we take up uh, this offering together. Father, I thank you for the blessings that you've given to us, for the finances, God, that we have to do more than we need. God, I thank you for the the gifts that have been prayed over and are going to be given today, for the commitments that people are making today to pay this out over the next year. God, we want to see your kingdom expand and grow, and that's not our project, God. Only you can do that. But we want to plant seeds and we want to water and we want to offer what we have and pray you will multiply it beyond our imagination. God, I thank you for the work of Eastern European missions, for all the incredible things you're doing in a country uh, that seemed to shut you out years ago. I thank you for the work of the Becks in Africa. I thank you for the work of the Vances in Canada, for others that we're supporting, for the, the mission trip to Panama that went out this week. God, we, we just thank you so much for what you're doing for the, through the world, and we want to be a part of it, God. We don't want to just hear about these things. We want to be a part of it. So, God, as we give today, would you use these funds in the best way possible? Would you break the chains of greed in our own lives? And would you let us know that we are dependent people, dependent on you and dependent on others? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.